So if you're here for the first time, welcome, one year on. Um, we've only been in this building actually since Easter. So if you are here uh, and you're kind of think, looking around thinking, wow, this is, this is great. This is, this is still relatively new um, for us here at Trinity. But I want to, um, to begin um, this morning with a story. Um, and it's a story that's told by um, a Christian uh, writer and author called John Ortberg. Some of you may have read some of the things he's written. But he, in a book called God is Closer Than You Think, he writes this. He said, one day, I was sitting on a plane next to a businessman, uh, and the screensaver on his computer was the picture of a fair-headed little boy taking what I looked like his first shaky steps. Is that your son? I asked. Big mistake. Yes, that was the man's son, his only child. Let's say his name was Adam. The picture on the computer was taken three months earlier when Adam was 11 months old. The man told me about his son's first step and first word with a sense of wonder, as if Adam had invented locomotion and speech. There was a more recent picture of Adam on the man's mobile. Uh, the man showed it to me. Uh, the same picture could be viewed more clearly on his computer. The man showed me that. He had a whole string of pictures of Adam doing things that pretty much all children do, and he displayed them one at a time with commentary. I and my seatmates got a graduate course in Adamology. I can't wait to get home to him, the man said. In the meantime, I could look at these pictures a hundred times a day. They never get old to me. They were already getting pretty tiresome to everybody else in our section of the plane. But why was the man so preoccupied with Adam? Was it because his boy's achievements were so impressive? No, millions of children learn to do the same thing every day. In fact, my own children, I wanted to tell him, had done the same things at an earlier age with superior <laughs> skill. No, the man was preoccupied with Adam because he looked at Adam through the eyes of a father. Everything Adam did was cloaked with wonder. It didn't matter that other children do them as well. You obviously miss your son, I said. How long ago did you leave home? Yesterday, he replied. One day away from his son was one too many. He didn't simply want to love him from a distance. He wanted to be with him. And then it hit me. I am the child on God's screensaver. And so are you. The tiniest details of our lives never grow old to him. God himself is filled with wonder at our faltering steps and our stammering words. Not because we do them better than anyone else, but because he views them through the eyes of a loving father. You see, when God uh, himself came to earth, his redemptive name was Emmanuel. God with us. And when Jesus went back to the Father, his promise was to send the Holy Spirit so that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, God has made us above all for his presence, for his presence. And as one Christian from 1,600 years ago, a man called Augustine, once said, um, 
God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Or probably close to our hearts are homeless until they find their home in him, in his presence. So this is why when Johnny um, asked me uh, this morning um, to share some of the things about the wider vision of the diocese and where Trinity Church Nottingham fits into that, um, I kept coming back to the only thing that really makes sense of it all, of this commitment to grow disciples wider, younger, and deeper. That's what, um, uh, about uh, 16 months ago, as a, as a diocese, the churches that are part of the Church of England across the city and the county, we made a commitment together to say, uh, this is what we believe that God is calling us to be and to do, to make disciples who will make disciples. And that in our life as a diocese, in our mission, we will seek to grow wider in, in, in how we reach out to everyone who lives in each one of those communities in which we have a presence. And that's 320 communities. Um, but we also want to reach younger and connect with people who feel very disconnected from the church, and then also to, to grow disciples deeper, deep roots. And um, when, I, when I reflect on that vision, and that's an, an image that I get to see quite often um, in different ways as I now journey around and support and encourage different churches across the diocese, it strikes me that this only makes sense in light of God's presence. Um, that's what this is all about. Um, it's about God's desire for us and how all our desires are transformed and ultimately satisfied in his amazing presence. Um, so the and vision for growing disciples wider, younger, and deeper is not principally about the survival of an institution. Um, sometimes people come, might imagine that's what it's about. Um, but... Um, We're on a mountain now. Um, But um, it is about a vision. It is about a vision for seeing the presence of God um, uh, manifest in the life of God's people, in their worship, in their prayer, in their community together as the people of God. And then about God's presence transforming our society, um, bringing that transformation through the presence of God. Now, of course, on one level, we already have the presence of God. If we belong to Christ, if we have faith in Christ, whether that faith this morning feels big and bold or whether it feels very puny and fragile, if, uh, if we put our hope and our trust in Christ, we have received the presence of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit um, is at work in us, um, even when we don't recognize that. God is with us. That is a promise, and nothing can take that away. And yet at the same time, God invites us to seek his presence. Um, So on one level, we already have the presence of God, and yet God also invites us to seek his presence. There's a famous pastor and Bible teacher called A.W. Tozer. Um, He's a man who lived um, in the first half of the 20th century, and among his many writings um, is a little book called The Pursuit of God. Um, And in it, um, he said this, he said, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the the heat of their desire after God. 
They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Now, King David understood this. Tozer said, in fact, of of David, he said, David's life was a torrent of spiritual desire and his psalms ring with the cry of a seeker and the glad shout of a finder. Um, And that's why the book of Psalms is such a precious gift. Um, And by consistently reading them, by reflecting on the psalms, by singing them, we are placing ourselves in well-worn tracks of those who in every imaginable circumstance of life were learning to seek after God, to pursue God, the presence of God, to celebrate his presence. And that's why if you're part of Trinity and you've been part of this church family over the last year. I know you'll have been learning um, to, to, to read a psalm each day. Um, and and, and um, if that's something you've been doing, you will have discovered what a rich thing that is. Every experience of life. Um, and yet uh, that sense of God's presence, um, that cry for God. Now, David didn't always get it right. Um, and David doesn't present himself, um, as it were, as the perfect example of someone seeking God. There were monumental moments of personal failure in David's life. Um, but he never stopped longing to be nearer to God. Um, and even in those moments of deepest humiliation and repentance, what he does is to cry out for God's presence, that nearer sense of the presence of God. And 1 Chronicles chapter 15, which Josie did such a remarkable job reading earlier, um, is in fact the most significant event in David's life. Um, You see, um, the most significant, there are lots of events you could pick out of David's life, and there there are probably some which are more well-known than the one that was read to us this morning. So you might think, well, maybe the most significant event was when um, Samuel came and anointed David. Um, He'd been looking after his father's sheep, and he's brought in, and uh, and he's anointed by Samuel. Um, uh, And uh, there was a kind of uh, an anointing that would prepare him for something that God would um, call him to do in the future. And then there's, you might think, well, maybe the big moment, the greatest moment of his life was slaying Goliath. Um, or maybe it was when um, he was finally proclaimed king um, over Israel. Or perhaps when he finally subdued all the enemies around Israel that were trying to destroy them. There were lots of kind of key moments in David's life. But actually, what's clear in the narrative of both 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, which are the stories, the kind of sort of parallel stories in the Old Testament of of God's dealings with his people. And and at the heart of that story is God uh, giving, graciously giving to his people, um, David as king. Um, And... What we begin to see in this story is that the high point is in fact this moment when David leads the ark of God into Jerusalem, into this city that will be at the center of God's plan and purpose, not only uh, for the people of Israel at that time, but in his plan and purpose to bring about the salvation of the whole world. And this high point is actually, doesn't come when David puts on royal robes, and uh, uh, goes to sit on his throne in Jerusalem. Now, the high point is when David takes off his royal robes 
and he gets right down to a linen ephod, um, which was just kind of like a little skimpy um, linen garment that um, would have been started about waist and gone down to about thigh uh, level. And David, the great king, leads the procession into Jerusalem, dancing, we're told, with all his might. Um, and uh, this, is, this is the extraordinary, momentous high point for David and for the people of God. Because the presence of God is being put at the very center of the city, um, where God is going to dwell with his people. And of course, that uh, and we haven't got time to look at that this morning, but it, that points forward to the extraordinary way in which God is going to fulfill that promise. What was a shadow, as it were, at this time, is going to point towards the presence of, uh, of God that's going to come uh, upon his people, upon the new Jerusalem through Jesus Christ. Um, but this is, this is the high point, and it's a high point because what David does at this point in his, his, his reign um, uh, is... He demonstrates that God's presence will be at the heart of his leadership. And God's presence will be at the center of the life of his people. Um, so I just want to ask one question. As we reflect on this passage this morning, and you might want to go away and, and read it again and um, practice those names. And, um, and, you, and I, I'd recommend read the, from chapter 15 through to chapter 18 because in a, in a way it's all part of the same um, momentous uh, period in David's life and in the story of God's people. But I simply want to ask, uh, for us to ask ourselves, what happens to the people of God when they yearn for the presence of God? And what happens when we put the presence of God at the center of our plans, that desire for God's presence? What might that mean for Trinity Church? What might that mean for the diocese? What might that mean for the church all across this nation and around the world? Um, now, you can reflect on that yourself by looking at the passage. I'm just going to mention and, and quickly touch on five things. Um, and don't worry, we're not going to be here all morning. Um, we're going to move some of these through some of these quite quickly. Um, but these are things that, that you can't possibly miss. And there, there are other things as well about what happens when we pursue the presence of God, what we can expect. First of all, first thing to notice is we become more intentional about things that really matter and more relaxed about things that really don't matter. Um, like, for example, what people think of us. It's the obvious one here. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And um, the final little footnote of, of chapter 15 is that moment where we're told his wife, uh, Michelle, looks out and she is not impressed. Uh, she feels humiliated by what David is doing. Um, but actually, he's not doing it. We get a glimpse of them. David is not doing this to impress the people around him. Um, this is about him leading the people in worship to God. Um, and in fact, in 1 Samuel, uh, we didn't read the 1 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel version of this moment, but in 2 Samuel where, um, where the story is told about David going in and he's, it's reported to him that Michelle is not happy with what he's doing. And, and he said, I've got to. And he goes on to say, and in fact, if it, if it required it, I'll be even more undignified than this. And you're kind of thinking, what does he have in mind? He's only got a linen ephod on at this moment. Um, anyway, we won't go there. But I mean, he's just going, I will, I will do whatever it takes to lead um, the people of God 
in worship of God, into the presence of God. He is wildly abandoned to God here. Um, and, and that's what matters. And, and on, on the one side, it doesn't mean to say that he's kind of got all kind of, well, I don't really care any longer. Just kind of let it hang out. Let's just go for it. I mean, because alongside this wild abandon is this extraordinary attention to detail. Um, but what David's really concerned about is the detail of how will they prepare themselves to worship God? How can he prepare this great procession? And so you get all these instructions and, and the uh, insight into the detailed way in which David planned for this moment. Um, and, uh, and that's just an extraordinary insight into both his, yes, his wild abandon, but also his attention to the detail of leading God's people in worship. That's why perhaps his greatest legacy to the people of God then and since has been a songbook, a worship book, the worship book of the, of the human race. Um, that, that, that was an expression of David's heart for God. Um, and I think this is one of the things that will happen as we seek after God's presence, as we make the presence of God the center a pursuit of the church and of the diocese, is that we will find that the things that don't really matter no longer matter. And the things that do, like the worship of God, the praise of God, that will get our fullest attention and sometimes our wild abandon. Um, now, um, so that's the first thing that we should expect to happen. The second thing is when we, we, we pursue the presence of God above all things, we'll encounter new depths of joy in the joy that flows from God's heart. Um, it really should make us a more joyful people. Um, David recognizes so clearly that his God is a God of joy. And he recognizes that so clearly that what he's doing here in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 is he's establishing um, as it were, almost an institution of worship. Um, he's appointing lots of people who, who've got different responsibilities with regard to the worship of God's people. Um, and uh, of course, the Levites have a special part to play in that. Um, but he picks out the names of those who've been gifted, anointed by God, are skilled in different ways to contribute to the worship of God's people. And it's not just talented musicians. If you look through, there are people who bring all kinds of other gifts uh, that are joined together um, so that they can participate in the worship of God. And the purpose is to raise, verse 16, to raise sounds of joy because that will reflect the character of the heart of God. Now, I think some of us who've been Christians for, for a long while, we have no difficulty in recognizing that God is the most loving being in the universe. Um, we're kind of okay with that idea. And, and we've got stories we can tell about encountering the extraordinary love of God. What I think we struggle with and what I sometimes struggle with is to believe that God is also the most joyful being in the universe. That he is full of joy. Um, and that when we worship God, we will not only encounter his love, but we will also encounter his joy. Um, uh, it was lovely, um, through the Spirit, Johnny prompted to pray earlier that the, 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 the oil of gladness that comes to us um, when we bring ourselves to God, when we surrender ourselves to him. Um, and um, you did very well getting here today because of the marathon. I don't know whether some of you had to leave really early to get across here, um, and, but well done for making it safely. Um, sometimes people say, and I've said it myself, that the Christian life is like a marathon. 
not a sprint. I think that's true. Um, uh, but when I think about that, because I'm not a marathon runner, I was always a sprinter, and when I think about marathons, I don't think of joy. <laughs> and when I see pictures, when I see pictures of marathon runners, I don't see joy written over their face, <laughs> unless they are built like Mo Farah, and they just kind of, they just glide effortlessly, and they seem to smile most of the way, um, and certainly when they cross the line. So when I think about a marathon, I don't think, oh joy! Um, I just kind of, it seems to me to sort of like a picture of something that's going to just, oh my goodness, the Christian life. <gasps> it's a marathon, I was going to keep going. And there are moments where we've got to keep going. But you know, the amazing thing uh, that David discovered is when you come into the presence of God, when you seek his presence, you are filled with a joy. It's not just about a smile on your face that enables you to ignore difficult circumstances. No, you can look straight into those difficult circumstances, the pain the loss, um, the, the disappointment, and yet still know the fullness of God's joy um, that releases you to, to, to run this marathon. Um, may not, maybe not always with a smile on our face, but with the joy of God in our hearts. And of course, the scriptures tell us in, in the book of Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Um, this is something that strengthens the people of God. So if we pursue the presence of God, we will also encounter more of God's joy flowing into our lives. The next thing which I think we should anticipate is that we're able to let go of past regrets and be ready to respond to new opportunities because the Lord is here now. His presence is here in these very moments. You see, this is not the first time that David tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem. The first time he tried to do it, it did not go well. Um, David had failed to prepare properly. He'd failed to prepare the people properly. And certainly not according to the instructions that Moses had given um, in, in, in the law. Uh, he'd failed to recognize the awesome holiness of the presence of God. What this meant that the God of the universe... Um, was going to come into the center of the city and be at the heart of the people of God. Um, and having not prepared well for that, um, they did not get very far. And David, in realizing um, the awesomeness of God's presence, says, we're not ready. We're not ready. And so there's a while longer before he, he returns and takes the ark into Jerusalem. Now, I think that the amazing thing here is just a reminder that second opportunities in the grace of God do come. They came for David. Um, God didn't say, David, you messed that up. Now get out of the way. Let's put someone else in charge of this most important and significant moment uh, for my people. And I think there will be some of us who carry regrets of missed opportunities of one kind or another. And we sometimes look out and we think, well, um, we live in a world that's often very unforgiving. Um, and maybe a world that sometimes feels doesn't give you that second or third or fourth chance and, and we can bring that attitude to the way in which we fear God will treat us um, but the God, God of the Bible is not like that and David discovers that he forgives indefinitely the God of the Bible piles opportunity upon opportunity and so as Christians we don't need to be consumed by regrets 
The cross of Christ declares that we are completely forgiven, which means that we can expect God to keep putting fresh opportunities before us in every moment of every day. Um, the way into his presence is permanently open to us. Um, and I think this is one of the things that a church that puts the presence of God at the center of its plan and purpose will find that God sets before his people new opportunities all the time, um, individually and for the church together. And that leads to a fourth thing. And that's that uh, when we put the presence of God at the center of the life of the church, our vision for the church, our vision for the people of God becomes bolder and it becomes broader than anything we could imagine. Um, I mean, take a look at the climax to David's worship um, uh, before the presence of God. If you've got the Bible open, don't worry if you haven't, I'm going to read it to you. Um, but um, after all this, this great preparations and the procession into Jerusalem, the climax is a song, is an outburst of praise. But actually, David's not even left that to chance. He's given them the, the, the song to sing. Um, and it begins... Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. That's chapter 16, verse 8. And then what follows is the, the declaration of the goodness of God in the story of his people. Um, and it's a, it, they are to worship God in this way uh, for the purpose of recognizing how they are to be a blessing to the nations in God's plan. Now, there is nothing inward-looking about David's vision for worshipping, for a worshipping community. Um, it takes in the whole world. And when the first Trinity Church Nottingham began to meet in 1840, uh, I think there's a picture that will come up in a moment. Um, for those of you who think Trinity Church started a year ago, um, there is... Uh, ah, there, there we are. That's, um, that's Trinity Church. It doesn't exist any longer. It's now Trinity Square, and alongside it is the very first vicar of um, Trinity Church. I think he could do with a beard, actually. Um, he's sort of something missing there. But, um, um, and, and in 1840, don't you think he's kind of missed, something's missing. Um, but back in, back in 1840, he was appointed the first vicar of this new church that had been established in a, in a growing city and in, in, in a part of the city where there wasn't a worshipping community. And so they, they uh, built uh, this uh, beautiful church. In fact, the spire, it, it meant that um, it was the highest um, point in the city. It was um, a really key part, a, a sort of landmark um, for the city for, for over 100 years. Um, and they began to gather together for worship. Um, and they put the presence of God at the center of that community, the presence of God in the lives of these people of worship. And... Um, uh, actually, this, this chap here um, is a man called Thomas uh, Denrose Davis, who he, he was vicar of uh, Trinity Church for 10 years, and then God called him to Australia. So he went off to Melbourne um, to be archdeacon of Melbourne and to help plant churches there um, as that city was suddenly expanding. Um, now, don't get any ideas. You know, but I did think kind of maybe there's a possibility of a link there. Maybe we should re re restore that link with uh, Melbourne in, in Australia, kind of... Um, uh, because out of this church, um, after 10 years, uh, your leader in uh, 1850 went off to help establish churches in, in a, a growing city in Australia. So, 
Who knows, there's a partnership there. But I don't think they could have had any idea when they began to meet together for worship. First a small group of people, and then as it began to grow, the plans that God would have in store for them. That they would be called to things that were bolder and broader than anything they could have imagined. Um, that within six years of that church being established, um, they would um, open two day schools that, in, in, that by 10 years were educating 5,800 mainly poor children in the city um, who had no schooling. And then within 10 years as well, they had had working men's classes, evening classes for reading and writing, a very well-stocked library so that people could come and, 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 and have access to books. They had a savings club. Um, there was a clothing club. Uh, there was a charity for poor women. There was even a sewing club um, led by the, uh, the first vicar's wife. Um, to help people uh, to be able to learn skills that would be, enable them to care for their families. Um, I don't know, lots of ideas there. Um, but the reality is that um, within 10 years, they'd also planted two new churches and built two new churches in the city. And they started sending people out and seeing God calling people out to other parts of the world. Um, one of the first curates, um, in fact, went to be missionary bishop of the Falkland Islands. How about that? Will? Um, let me see. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, what a... <laughs> it's, it's great the way... I mean, who would have thought when they started out that, that God was going to uh, take them to other parts of the world and, and send people out? And there are many more stories that um, you can find for yourself. And um, I've enjoyed learning about the story of what God was doing then. But because it's the same spirit, the same presence of God at the heart of his people. And I would just urge you in your prayers together, do not put any limits on what God might do and especially how God might call Trinity Church alongside other churches in this city to bless the city, to transform the city in response to needs that seem at times insurmountable. After all, this was the city where uh, William and Catherine Booth became Christians um, and, and they were inspired to establish a gospel movement among the poor that would spread to cities all across the world. It was known, became known as the Salvation Army. Some of you all know. Um, on one occasion, um, William Booth said this. He said, God loves with a great love the one whose heart is bursting with a passion for the impossible. Now, I think that passion for the impossible if it's going to be uh, truly honouring to God, doesn't flow out of just sitting down with a blank piece of paper and saying, what, what should we dream up? I believe that a passion for the impossible flows out of an encounter of the presence of God. Um, and that's what happens when we, we put the pursuit of the presence of God at the centre of the purposes of the church. Um, so let's set no limits on what God might want to do with us the opportunities he puts before us, but also for Trinity Church in the years to come. And then one fifth thing, and I think I don't want us to miss this one. It's a little detail, pops up in a couple of places, that those closest to us get blessed up and not burnt out. Um, when we put the pursuit of the presence of God at the center of the purposes of the church. You see, in, in chapter 16, verse 2, um, it wasn't one of the verses that... Um, uh, Josie read, but um, just after hearing about uh, his wife looking on and, and uh, just being humiliated by, by David, we read that David then blessed all the people. 
And then in chapter 16, towards the end of that chapter, verse 43, we're told that David went home and blessed his own family. Um, and remember, that included his wife, Michelle. Um, it's an amazing thing to be given the gift of blessing others. But we have to begin with those around us, those that God puts beside us. And when we encounter and we pursue the presence of God, I think God enables us to grow in blessing those around us. Um, sometimes churches that are, that are pursuing the purposes of God can sometimes be, almost become over a period of time hollowed out and their leaders can become hollowed out um, because they're just absolutely focused on, on, on serving those wonderful purposes of God, reaching out, and the, and the need is endless. The opportunities are forever before them. But when we pursue the presence of God, first and foremost, we find that um, rather than being hollowed out, we're filled up. And blessing just naturally flows out of that. And, and that's what I pray for those of you involved in leadership in, in, in Trinity Church, whatever role you play. Um, uh, but everyone who's part, that, we, that you'll have a sense of being filled up, not hollowed out by this wonderful thing that you've come to participate in, what God is doing, because you're pursuing the presence of God. And I'd ask you to pray that for, for me and, uh, and for my family and for those who serve God in other communities across the city and around uh, the diocese. Um, wouldn't you like to have been one of the Levites? Wouldn't you feel a little bit kind of miffed if on this great occasion you were just one of those looking on, thinking, oh, I'd love to be a Levite. They got to lead the procession. They got to be at the center of this plan and this purpose. Well, there's good news for us and for everyone who belongs to the people of God. The Apostle Peter says this. He says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You see, in the fulfillment of God's plan, this trailer to the main film is, we, we've been invited into that new priesthood of all those who belong to Christ. We are, all of us, every one of us, able to participate in this great procession of the presence of God in our city and in our world. Um, and so I pray that Trinity will be a church where people encounter the presence of God and crave for yet more of the presence of God and that through his presence shining brightly in this beautiful and broken city, um, many more people will be drawn to that presence, um, to encounter that presence for the very first time. Um, now, you heard earlier, in two weeks' time, uh, at ten past eight in the morning, a hundred or so, we hope, people will be gathered here like we are this morning. And at ten past eight, it's actually not going to be a recording, it's going to be live. Um, so we don't get any opportunity to kind of rerun things. But we're, we're just um, going to be entrusted with something that um, really rather came out of the blue, um, just a matter of a month or so back. Um, 
an invitation to host a service that will be broadcast um, across the nation. Um, in fact, apparently there are about two million people who listen to the live service on a Sunday morning at 10 past eight. I won't ask if you've ever done that. But there are two million people who will be listening in and some of them will be joining in as we meet here to do what God calls us to do, to place him at the very centre of our life as a church, to pursue him above all things. Joanne and, and, and the team will be leading us. Um, it'd be great if you could be here. I know it's going to be a neat, pretty early start. Um, but what a gift that God has entrusted to us um, so early in, in the story of Trinity to be able to offer worship in this place, to put the presence of Jesus at the very centre of the life of this church, of the life of the diocese. We're going to share something about in that service about what God is doing, not only here but in other parts of the diocese. Um, and I want to talk about the invitation um, of Jesus to come to him, to have our desires satisfied by him, by his presence. So it'd be great if you kind of wanted to come along to that as well, or sit at home, or lie in your bed and listen to it. Um, it's much better to be here. Um, but to perhaps take that as a, a reminder, almost like a banner of what God has called this church back into being, the Trinity Church that God gave such uh, a bold vision to back in 1840, that God is, as it were, reborn in this generation um, and is already touching lives for the purpose of the transformation of the city and of the sending out of people into all the world. But at the center of that, if it's to remain healthy, if it's to keep growing in, in God's purposes, let's make the pursuit of his presence the central dream, the aspiration for this church. Um, and would you, as I pray that for you, would you pray that for me?